I want to share with you from Luke 15. I suppose I've said that on 10,000 Sunday mornings, but this one I haven't really seriously spoken about. I, I really enjoy the first parable of the lost sheep. I, there's a lot there that um, relates to us. And of course, the prodigal son and his elder brother, but Right in the middle there is the one that essentially very few people talk about. Um, and one reason is there's not much to talk about. Uh, let me read it. It's in verse 8. Jesus gives the parable, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she find it. When she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. And that's a Hebrew way of saying, let's have a massive party. Um, For I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Um, I say there's not much there. Um, I can tell you that it's the same message as the lost sheep and the lost boys. Uh, But what is that message? Because there is something unique about the sheep parable, certainly unique about uh, the younger brother, then totally different but same with the elder brother. What what is this? Um, Why it is there? And I, I repeat, it doesn't give much to work with. And especially when you begin to look at it, the little coin... And in the Greek language, it's very specific. That little coin in the days of the New Testament, if we took it today, it would be worth about 15 cents. I mean, seriously, little coin. Um, and again, of course, it's a different world, different culture, but it would be equivalent to an average man's day <coughs> labor pay. So if you're going to work for somebody for a day, you'd get one of these little silver coins. So here you have this woman who loses a coin that at best is is worth um, a day's labor. That's the best, you could say. And she loses it, and um, when she finds it, goes absolutely crazy uh, uh, because she goes really in ecstasy of joy. Rejoice with me. She's found the coin. It's like saying, I lost a 10-cent piece, and I found it, so let's have a celebration that involves the entire neighborhood. Um, I think the entire neighborhood would think you've gone crazy if you were going to go so excited about losing this little tiny uh, coin. Um, I think it's a little overdone. He's pushing it. And so... We're going to do sort of detective work because there's a lot more here than meets our Western eyes. If you come with me into the near Middle East, you'll begin to understand what's really going on here. It's really, it's, there's more to it than just one coin. It says she had 10 coins. It's a very specific number, 10 coins. She lost one of them. So they appeared to be connected in some way. She had 10, 
that is spoken as a ten, not just scattered ten, but ten. And of that ten, one of them gets lost. Now, suddenly, if you're in the near Middle East, even to this very day, you'll know exactly what's going on. Have you seen pictures of women in the Middle East? And they have a necklace either around their throat, but more, actually, you'll see it across their forehead. And it will be ten coins necklace and made of silver or gold. That's what this was talking about. So right away, we're not talking about one coin. It is one coin that is in a necklace. And so when the one coin goes, the whole necklace really is in jeopardy. It's it's part of the whole. So what is that necklace of 10 coins that the woman wore? Well, it's difficult to actually say all that it meant. Uh, just for starters, it would be a wedding ring. It was given to her when she was married by her husband. And so the first thing we would think of would be a wedding ring here in the West. But then it's not. There's a lot more going on here. And the 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 better word to use would be a locket. It is a very um, important piece of jewelry that is given, not merely to show it off, but it was actually telling the woman of the love that her husband had for her. And with a locket, you open it up and you, you see your face or the face of your beloved. And in that, there is an act of remembrance. And I've, I've talked before about that word remembrance, both in the Old <coughs> and the New Testament. It's not us who just think of something in the past. A remembrance in the Bible is bringing the past into the present. And so when she would look at that necklace or locket, uh, everything about her husband and their union together is brought into this moment. And um, that begins to change the whole thing. This um, was the assurance that her husband was always with her. It was... Um, the declaration of their love. It was the announcement to anyone who saw it that she belonged to her husband. It declared a forever friendship. It declared the covenant that had taken place between her and her husband. It was talking about the union that they enjoyed going all the way back. (coughs) Excuse me. Going back to the Garden of Eden, when the first man received the first woman, and it says those two shall become one flesh. It's the mathematics of covenant. One plus one equals one. And that around her forehead, around her neck, was a proclamation, you're only seeing half of this person. There is another that has become one with her. There is another that is pouring into her love and acceptance. You, you are seeing one half 
of a friendship. It is the announcement. She's the wife. She's not just a woman. She is the wife of a husband. So when she walked through the village or the town, it was her honor, um, especially more so in those days when a woman, um, if she wasn't married, was in a precarious situation. There was a woman never went to work. A woman never uh, worked outside the house. She was looked after by a husband. She produced the food and she produced the babies. And that was a woman's life. And if she was outside of that, there was nothing left to do. It was precarious. So when that woman walked through town with her necklace on, it was the declaration of her honor. She is a woman and she is under the protection of a man. It was her identity. She is not a woman only. She is a woman with. She's a woman with her husband. It was a symbol of their (coughs) relationship. It was also the symbol of how the (coughs) husband saw her. The, when you looked at her, as, as I said, <clears throat> you can see this in Middle Eastern women today, that um, the silver coins or the gold coins in their hair, and, and their hair, it, it sparkles through their hair. And there was a symbol that the, the husband has placed this upon her and said, this is her beauty. This is how he sees her. Um I don't know if you've noticed it, but throughout the scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, this relationship that we have to God is looked upon very romantically. If, if you go to the Western church today, the whole thing looks like a courtroom, that, that God is sovereign and God's angry at sin and you better repent and so on, which... I don't find in the scripture. I I find rather every reference in the Old Testament to this relationship between God and man is clothed in the language of weddings and marriage and faithfulness and covenant um, love. And so it's no surprise when you come to this that it was looked upon as the beauty of the wife is now being <clears throat> enhanced by the husband. Have you ever seen in the Old Testament, um, speaking uh, of the way he looks at us, and the, the word is used, the apple of his eye. We talked about this a few months ago. Um, the apple of his eye, it goes, it's about six or seven references in the Old Testament, that you are the apple of God's eye. It's a very strange expression, the apple of his eye. We use it in English, but um, it goes way back. And the ancient said, if you get close enough to a person, you can see your face in the pupil of their eye. And so that was called the little man in your eye. And it, it meant that you are so close to me. You can look and see yourself in my eye because you never depart my gaze. You are there in my eye. And so little man in the eye translates in English as the apple of your eye. Um, but it, it's, it's here. It, it's in, in that necklace. She saw herself 
as her husband saw her. Um, it, it was a, so it's an honor that she who is made in the image of God is now fulfilling the mark of God's intention that says, you know, these two shall become one. So this little coin, I said it was 15 cents. That's his face value. But obviously, in the last five minutes, I've bestowed upon it a value that that is infinitely more than 15 cents. Here is a value, a worth, that is far bigger than the coin could ever be. Um, And then, of course, you're dealing with a different culture. So I'm merely reporting this. Don't get mad at the people and, and don't think of them as sort of Americans. This is what was. Take it or leave it, like it or not. That was of such sacred importance in a marriage that if you lost it, and of course it was the woman who would lose it, if you lost it, you were shamed to the whole village. How could you ever be so careless as to lose this most precious, this necklace that symbolized so much how could you do that and within the marriage it was grounds for separation if you present i've lost the necklace then and especially among the pharisees they were all the time looking for grounds for divorce um but that they yes it was grounds for separation and even in extreme cases for divorce um So now I'm beginning to understand what Jesus was saying when she lost this. It wasn't losing 15 cents. (laughs) No. And on top of that, if she really has lost it, then the marriage is in shambles. And so he says that she goes through the house. She goes with candles. She lights all the lamps she can. She sweeps the house. She turns the whole house out. This woman's going crazy. Not over 15 cents, but over all that this coin connected with a necklace stands for. Um, He's turning our attention to marriage in the context of someone or something being lost. And that lost is of such preciousness. Well, that's what the sheep was about. I've lost my sheep, and the sheep was so precious, it's worth going to find. The father lost his son, and is worth, you see what I'm saying? Here he says, in the context of marriage, that he's speaking of discovering that which has gone lost. Okay, then hold it. And this is a real question. Very few people ever think about it. Um, Especially if you do marriage counseling, people never, never think about it. Um, Why do we get married? Uh, Especially today, it's a a good question. But I say it in the, the context of all creation. You, you you don't see cockatoos walking up the aisle. Um, I mean, and I'm, I'm being serious. I mean, they eat. We eat. Why don't they get married? Um, and, and we're supposed to come from apes, but I've never seen a monkey in a white dress. You know, it, it's... 
really, I, I know, but you've got to think about this. What is marriage that is unique in all creation? We are the only creatures that are married. Think about that. Why, why is it? You say, well, it's a sort of the law. <clears throat> really? Um, what about when you go into these primitive cultures? Uh, we, surely <clears throat> we, we Westerners look at them as almost, you know, subhuman, but they, they're married and it's a, sometimes a bond of marriage stronger than anything we understand here in the West. So, so why? Can I tell you why we get married? It's because of the Holy Trinity. Um, the God who created us has revealed himself to be the circle of self-giving love. He's not an only. He's not monetis, mono. <clears throat> my work, my isn't working today. But um, he, he is not a monad. He is not a singular. God is three persons. And they, they are bound together in a self-giving love that is infinite and ultimate. And so the Father gives himself in totem to the Son and the Son to the Father in the Holy Spirit's fellowship. And that is our God. Um, pagan approach to God is simply the word God. And God in, in Hebrew, anyway, in most languages, simply means ultimate power. Um, and that's the end of it. And they talk to a God who's all-powerful. And so we think that it's a sort of ultimate self-help that I can twist his arm to make him do something. Whereas the Bible reveals God as the ultimate, well, I say family, but it's more than that. It is the ultimate expression of love that gives itself away and love that receives and gives. And all of that in the divine fellowship and camaraderie of the Holy Spirit. That's our God. Our God is society. Our God is not a lonely one. He's, he's God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so when he creates, you will find that stamp is in creation. That's the God who created and that that um, means that marriage, but at that point I have to include all relationships, wherever human beings give themselves away to another. Well, that's another thing. You don't find that anywhere else in creation, where there is actual laying down your life. And, and I would, would say that in true friendship... Um, there, there are certain aspects of our society, the first responders. Um, where, where's that come from? Yeah. Where, that look on a mother's face when she looks at her baby. Where does that come from? It, this self-giving love that has got in it barbs that you touch my baby. And there, there, there's, mm -hmm. you find it somewhat in the animal creation. But this is a gentleness of love that actually is beyond human. It's, well, where's it come from? And marriage really brings that all together. 
um, the ultimate, the, the statement, as I've said already, that the man and the woman and those two shall become one. Um, but, but I must insist, it's all through. You, you get um, parties. Why do we have so many parties? Um, it's going to happen in a few days' time. Um, parties, families come together, and, and at least we know what it's supposed to be, um, the, the, the self-giving. And there's something, even though it fails again and again, we come back because we feel this is what it should be. I, I see a, a group of guys out hunting, sitting around a bonfire. Where's that come from? Do you ask these kind of questions? Especially when you travel the world and find it happens in every culture. Um, why do we dance? Of course, we're, might lead to sin, but um, so why is it that every culture, they dance? And they, they dance in different ways, but it's all symbolic of bringing human beings together. Well, as far as right all the way from uh, get together for coffee, um, get together for a dinner, get together, get together, get together. And, and as I've said before, the word companion is a Latin word, which means we eat bread together, together. It's, there's something in the human that is craving to come together. I'd say again, um, it, it's, it's not just a chance happening. It, it is, because we are made in the image of a God who in his very being is a circle of self-giving love. So you could add to what I've just said about the coin. If one knows the coin was a symbol that we're made in the image of God and it, it took it infinitely now beyond its face value. Here is a relationship to God, a relationship to another human being, the reception of the love of another human being, and to display that and honor that <clears throat> before the village. Okay. The houses in Galilee in those days, they were very small. They were made mostly of stone plastered with mud, uh, the floors were dirt floors, stamped dirt. They put straw on top of the dirt, or sometimes rushes. And it was there that all manner of creatures could find a home. Dirt floor, it's going to have cracks in it. Um, put rushes on top. And unless the woman is very astute, I don't know how often they changed it. Underneath there and there, you, you can find plenty of insects, spiders. It's possible you'd find a mouse or two. Um, I want you to get the, the picture. Uh, that These were almost mud huts. They weren't they were beyond that, but it was almost. And... Um, I, I've been in mud huts around the world and to put your feet down, especially if you don't have shoes on, you wonder what you're going to touch any minute, what's down there. The They didn't have bedrooms. One end of the room was raised and on that raised part of the um, room, that's where they slept. 
uh, in the summertime, they'd sleep on the roof or they'd sleep out in the, the backyard. Um, the kitchen was outside where they had a fire and, and they would cook out there. Also outside is where they caught the rain and had water. Primitive? Yeah, I guess so. Um, in the summertime, they had a tent on the roof. That was a, called an upper room, um, the tent on the roof. The houses were very dark. They had windows, but they were way at the top of the wall, very small. And then they were covered because they wanted to keep the cold out in the winter and the heat out in the summer. So, oh, and also there was a room at the back. They kept an animal there. I keep a cow for milk. I keep a sheep or two. But they were actually in the house. What I'm trying to say is, if you break your necklace and one little tiny coin drops, well, who knows where it is? It's gone between the rushes under the straw. Could be a crack down there that it's fallen into, under the furniture, out in the animal pen, God forbid. Um, but you don't know. If you knew where it fell, you wouldn't be lost. It's that suddenly she realized the necklace was just hanging there. Something terrible has happened. And she's lost a vital part of this symbol of her marriage. So what's she going to do? Place is dark. She needs to bring light quickly. What you're going to do is going to clean out all the straw, all the rushes, gets a broom, sweeps it, hard bristle brush. You're not going to put your hand down there unless you have to. Um, and then it, as a dog, well, we can't get up there and tear all the stuff off the windows. So we'll stick to the artificial light. We'll pull everything. I mean, this woman I emphasize was going crazy. There's a panic button here. She knows the terrible thing that she'd done. Um, and, and so she's searching. Now, hear me carefully. And if you don't understand what I'm saying here, think about it and um, maybe catch up with it later. When that coin fell wherever it fell, it didn't cease to be the coin. It didn't suddenly turn into a plastic piece of play coin it was exactly the same in value mm -hmm. as when it was in the necklace mm -hmm. and it still held all of the symbolic meaning that was attached to it the only thing that was different it is seriously misplaced and is probably at this point covered in dirt and whatever else and is living with the spiders and the mice and the cracks. So it is the most precious coin in the wrong place. Do you, do, do you understand what I'm saying here? What's the meaning of sin? It's, yeah, I'll leave it at that, at least for the moment. She goes into that darkness. Yes, she did sweep, but she had to put her hand there too goes into the darkness 
and she's going into the darkness to find that which belongs to her. That The value of that has not changed. The nature has not changed. It is still the coin, and it belongs to her. And even though she's lost it, it doesn't mean that she's lost the right to have it. She's going in, and she's going to put it where it belongs. She wasn't going there to see if she could see the coin or locate it. She is going in to restore the coin, not merely from being lost, but back onto the necklace where it belongs. And so this um, adventure will not quit until the necklace is back in place. Understand that. And so the woman has got to find the woman. The woman has got to find the coin Inside the darkness. I've often tried to be that coin because it's, it's hard to even think of such things. Um, that the coin is now in a place where it absolutely doesn't belong. It was not coined for this, nor was it selected and chosen to be this. It has a meaning that is of vast importance bestowed upon it that has absolutely nothing to do with the darkness that it finds itself in. Only when a person or a thing is lost, but especially I'm being kind of childish now, giving almost personality to a coin, but um, the coin now if it's lost, has forgotten what it is. It doesn't know its own value and it doesn't know its own symbolism and would have to try and find a meaning that conform to the darkness that it finds itself in. It's got to find a meaning that fits in with spiders and mice and rushes. Very sad. It's, it's now in a wretched, dangerous place because... Factually, it might not be found anymore. Lost. We've talked about that one before. All these parables about being lost, missed from where they're supposed to be. But the moment you say lost, you're saying something of enormous value, great preciousness. And how can I put it? Um... You don't lose something that isn't precious. You know, lots of things go missing, but you don't call them lost. Um, it, there's certain preciousness attached to the item before you say it's lost. And so, depending on that preciousness, will describe the urgency and the panic that's behind trying to find it. When a child goes missing, the whole village comes out to find it. It's precious. I often try and tell some of my religious friends that the village doesn't say, well, the kid's lost. You know, they'll, they'll say that about people like, you know, some people you meet on the street and the religious stick up their religious nose and say, he's lost. Um, no, the word, you, you should learn English. It's... Um, the word means if he's lost, then behind that facade, there is someone of 
great preciousness. That's the meaning of the word lost. And I say the nature of the search will reflect the preciousness and the value that's upon that which is lost. And of course, she hasn't changed her attitude toward the coin. In fact, what was assumed before, the value that she placed on the coin and the love that she found in the coin, that was assumed. Now it's lost, you you see it. And so you'd almost say she loves the coin more now that now it's lost. <coughs> that wasn't the case, but it looked like it. Um, it's disconnected from its owner. And she is going crazy. The coin has lost its voice. It stood there on her forehead and proclaimed to the world this woman's identity and her honor and her glory in her relationship to the husband. Now, the voice is gone. And from wherever it is in the darkness, it could only speak confusion. It could only say, I am not. I don't know what I am. I'm here in the darkness next to worthlessness. I I suppose every one of these parables in Luke 15 have something to say that's different to the others. Well, if this coin has some one thing to say, it is that the coin was utterly helpless to find itself. You know, you could really say that of the sheep too, but it's at least a sheep put itself where it is and will take itself out. Um, Certainly the sons, had they went and they came, but, but a coin obviously. But in a story, you look at some of those obvious things. This coin cannot save itself, utterly helpless. We cannot save ourselves, even if we knew we needed saving. We're so lost, we don't even know we are lost. Well, that's what the coin is trying to tell us. That means that the seeker the finder of this parable is center stage. The coin has absolutely nothing to do with it. The whole thing is on the shoulders of the seeker and the finder. And so here she is, in the darkness, in the dirt. And if you were that coin, you would see suddenly out through the darkness comes a hand. It's uh, quite a thought. I'm laying there utterly helpless. Don't even know I'm lost. All I know, everything's gone wrong. And I see a hand coming through the darkness. And the hand is searching. And the hand comes upon the coin and grasps it. And you hear this near scream of the woman, my coin, my coin, I'd lost my coin, I found it. And you could hear her shouting up and down the street. And she's saying, come party, celebrate, dance with me. I found my coin. I now I'm beginning to understand why she did that. And every neighbor would fully understand why she did that. And they would all join her. Okay, what's it about? 
I think we picked up mostly of what it's about, but let me put it like this. Well, let's start at the beginning. That's very important. The beginning of the gospel. When did the gospel begin? Ask 90% of people out there, and they will say when Adam fell, the gospel came because sin came into the world. And so the gospel then has one aim, and that is to save you from sin. Well, that would explain why most Christians are bored to tears. Because if you're saved from sin, well, now what? And that's why most churches never talk about today, ever. They always talk about when you die, because they don't really know what to do with today. Have you ever been accosted by those little evangelicals, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and they come to give you the good news? Do you, what did they say to you when they... I, I'm often accosted like that at airports, and, and they come, and it's marvelous good news. They say, supposing your plane crashed, where would you spend eternity? Oh, whoopee. Now, is that it? Then I go around, if I get run over, if the bus explodes, if the plane dies. This is really making me a free, happy person. Um, and, and so what, what, is there any news? Should I survive the crash? Um, no, it's only if you died. It's if you died. Where, where, where will you spend eternity if you died? Why do they do that? Because they don't know what else to do. Because they start in the wrong place and therefore their terminus is the wrong place. You've got to start much earlier. The gospel began before there was a world, before there was a galaxy. The gospel, in the beginning, Jesus, before he became Jesus of Nazareth, before he became God incarnate, the Christ, who is the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, beloved of the Father, Jesus, who will one day become the Son of Mary. But he is called then the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. Have you ever thought about that? Fascinating. We could spend another hour just on that. It says that that one person is the Word, which means that in one word, everything that God the Father is, is contained. In one word that this, the Son of God says, because it says, I know him and he has poured himself into me. And in one word, the person that would be called Jesus of Nazareth is everything that God is. One word. But it also means that everything, the Holy Trinity willed to create, everything is in one word, the Son. So he is the word of the Father concerning creation. He's the word of the Holy Spirit concerning creation. All creation is potential in him. This is vital. Jesus didn't just show up in Bethlehem. He, he's God before time, and he is the word of the Holy Trinity. 
It's like saying that one drop of water contains the Pacific Ocean. All creation is in this one. Everything, from mosquitoes to men, from vegetables to flowers, trees to birds, planets to galaxies. It all, one word, let it be. And everything that was potential in him, bees, is. Suddenly the skies are filled with birds in flight. Sea is filled with porpoises and whales and sharks and minnows. It was all in him. Some people have a very small idea of who Jesus is. But not merely the shape of them. You realize that. When he created them, it meant their very atomic structure was created with one word. It also meant that the quantum, which holds everything together, was part of that one word. This is Jesus. He's the source of the universe. He's the source of the furthest galaxy. That's what we Christians believe. So that means he, as creator, has a dynamic relationship with every creature. If he made them, that same word upholds them and eases them. So it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then it says, in him all things consist or holds together. And this just stopped holding together. But I don't know. Okay. Um, it's very important if it means you wouldn't be sitting there unless Jesus was holding the atoms of your body together that's a thought that means before you ever knew the name of Jesus he was holding you together and he was the breath by which you spoke It's interesting. That means I've never met a man who is outside of Christ. Wow. Huh? He couldn't he couldn't be he couldn't exist. Uh. Wow. You are Christians, right? You do believe he's the creator and upholder of all things. Mm. Isn't it easy to say that without thinking about it? He huh. everything we touch Every human we meet is held together by this one that we worship as Lord, God, and Savior. He fills creation. And the, the scripture says that it's not, he not only made it so it's from him, 
but also it says it's for him. The creation belongs to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Father has given this to the Son. It's uniquely his. It's his possession. And in that creation, the one who stands at the dizzy height of the Lord of creation is us, humans. So everything was made by him and for him but especially us, because we are lords of the rest. We were made to be so united to Jesus, to Christ, that inside of him and him inside of us, we would actually participate in God actually taste and touch and receive that self-giving love that God is. Actually know his life to be our life. Love created us to be participant members of the Holy Trinity family. The three, Father, Son, and Spirit, knelt beside that pile of mud. And the three of them kissed that pile of mud into life and man became a living soul. And the three of them made the garden of delight for the mankind to play in and discover creation, discover dancing holiness, discover the love of God to them, the joy, the assurance of their belonging. They could talk with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit boldly, without any anxiety, without any fear, learning to listen to his voice, joyfully respond to him. And then came the voice of the snake. Huh. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you see, this is so important. The snake didn't really depart from the program. If you're going to lie, it's got to have 90% truth to it. Or it's a bad lie. No one will believe it. And so the snake that knew the purpose, said, let's fulfill the purpose, but I've got a shortcut. We were created not only by Christ, but for him and in him, and everything that we would have, which was limitless, would to be found in that union we had with him. And so we would participate in God, in divinity. But it would be because we're united to Christ. And the snake says, you can be as God. You don't have to go this circuitous route. You don't have to be in Christ. What a waste of time. You can be as God. All you do is just declare yourself independent and, yeah, 
Bingo, you're there. That's the essence of sin. Then you can reach inside you to your divinity. Things don't change. Satan can get very boring. He never comes up with anything new. I mean, we're in 2022, and that was the temptation in the Garden of Eden, and I, I read it on Facebook today. You shall be as God. Leave Jesus, leave Christ out of it. That was it. Apart from Christ. You see, mankind, or shall we say you, me, joined Christ in you and you in Christ. Now that's the coin. That's it. That glory that you belong, that you are joined, that you're in a covenant, one plus one equals one, that's you. And it radiates from you, made in the image of God. Yeah. That we should actually become one with Christ that his life would become our life. Our life would become his life. This is a gospel. We haven't even got to creation yet. I mean, but this is the God. This is why. This is the great why behind you being here. This is the meaning right from the very beginning that we should actually participate Partake, make it our own, the love which is uniquely God's, the joy which is God's, the peace which is God's, live in the wisdom which is God's. So we would be creatures, but we'd be God's because we're joined to him who is God and he takes us right into the Holy Trinity. He in us, we in him. That's it, that's the coin. You're radiant. You make people look and stare in awe and wonder. Are you a creature? No. Animals would bow before you. It's Sin was turning the back. Mankind turned his back on the love that formed him and formed such a plan. But now, when man made that absolute insane choice he didn't stop being who he was and if you've missed it let me say it plainly now you don't have a sin nature you have a human nature this glorious human nature that was fashioned created to be one with christ and that's a real full human being the coin that shouts to the universe that you belong, you're in covenant. And when mankind fell into the darkness, it was that glorious human that fell into the darkness and he didn't turn suddenly into something else. He doesn't have a sin nature. He's blinded by the darkness He's hypnotized by the lie. Sin is essentially a terrible mental derangement. When I can't even remember who I am, 
I don't know who my original parent is. I'm in the darkness. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know where I'm going. And so in that place of darkness and spiders and dirt, I have to make up a meaning. And I know there's a God somewhere, so I make up a God that only reflects my own brokenness. So he's a God who hates me, punishes me, because that's how I feel about myself. Yeah, in the darkness. We are like the coin. We're out of service. We're, we haven't lost our value. We're stamped with the image of God. And it may be blurred and covered in muck, but we are who we are. We've forgotten who we are. We don't know why we're here. And I can't do a jolly thing to save myself. Not one thing. And in fact, I'm not sure that I need saving because I'm doing a pretty good job here in my imagination of what's going on. If I'm going to be saved, it will be 100% the finder who comes into the darkness. And the amazing thing is God didn't dump us. He loves the coin as much as Father loves the Son. He loves the coin and he loves us even when we're in the depth of the darkness. He didn't shrug us off. We belong to the Father, Son, and Spirit, and specifically to Christ, our Creator. We belong. And it was always the plan that Christ should come and join us to himself. And so now the breathtaking plan is that he would not only become, join himself or us to him, but that he would take this broken, marred, darkness, demented person, us, and join himself and become not a human being before the fall. He would join us in the darkness. And that is so important. God came and joined us in the darkness, meaning he would hear everything that Adam ever heard from the snake. He would hear every temptation that you've ever had. He would know your flesh saying, I want this. He came exactly where we are. But when he came... He never ceased to be part of the circle of self-giving love. He never ceased to be God. Which meant the Holy Trinity has now come inside our darkness. The Holy Trinity now looks through our darkness and tells us of their love for us. And Jesus is the one who has actually taken our flesh and our humanity. He's, well, suddenly he'd become one with us. We're the problem. 
He didn't do something about the problem. He joined it. And again, not everybody believes that. It meant that he heard every voice that you've ever heard. Every twisted, distorted longing. Every wretchedness of the darkness, the pain and the grief, the sorrow. And he has faced it, felt it, and refused to take his eyes off the Father. And refused to listen to Satan. And refused to say... I want that. He only listened to the voice of his father. God became me at my worst. You at your worst. But he chose consistently and steadfastly to be who he really is. God the son, son of the father. Truth. Refused to listen. Huh. I say, he came where we were. He became the lost coin. Do you understand that? Jesus became the lost coin. Came where we are. Became us. Look, how can I put this? <clears throat> I have used this illustration. Some of you will remember it. But when you've been in ministry for seven years, forgive me for repeating, but... Um, It is a okay. This is the the, it, the the essence of this comes from the early church, so it's not original to me. But you are dying with a deadly disease. It's in every part of your being. There's no hope, and no one can cure you. Doctors come and doctors go with all their potions and medicines, but no difference. And then this doctor comes. But this doctor doesn't bring any medicine. This doctor doesn't give any advice. This doctor does not put you on a discipline regime. This doctor, in a way that is beyond our comprehension actually got inside of you and became you and became sick with your sickness, taking it out of you into himself. And because he is unbegun life, as he took your sickness, he healed it. And he not only took your sickness, but he became your health. Because as long as he's there, you're alive and healthy. And so you, or should I say he, or should I say you, <laughs> got out of bed and danced around the hospital ward. Because you were now alive, healed of the sickness, but alive with his life. Yes. Yes. But if he left you, you're again terminally ill because he didn't do something for you. He was what he did. Do you follow that? 
That's the gospel. The gospel is not that somehow Jesus figured out a plan of salvation. That if you put the right ingredients of faith in there, then you could have it. Jesus has no plan of salvation. Jesus has no list of rules and disciplines. He doesn't bring any medicine. He comes into you and he is the savior. And he brings into you everything he accomplished on the cross. And he says, you were there with me. When I died, you died. You were co-crucified. You were co-buried. I took you to death. And that broken, twisted, you will never rise again. But you, cleansed and alive with my life, let's get out of here together. And you were born again when Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 And he ascended or walked into the conscious place of the Holy Trinity and he carried you with him. And because you were one with him, you were accepted by the Father who sent him to get you anyway. And the Holy Spirit's fellowship took you there. I tried to explain it to children once. So it's a kind of a stupid illustration, but many times that gets through to people that the pipes under your sink are all falling apart. So what do you do? You call in a plumber. And the plumber gets under the sink and fiddles and fools and does what he does. And he connects the pipes again and crawls out and you pay him. And he leaves and you've got good pipes for a while. And when they break again, you'll have to call the plumber and they get under the sink and do the same stuff. Only Jesus is a strange plumber because when the pipes are broken, he gets under the sink, but he doesn't come out again because he became the pipes. You now have perfect pipes for Christ are the pipes. He doesn't do something for you and then leave. He doesn't say, I did the job, now pay up. He comes And he he appears to disappear because he has come into you. And he heals you from the inside out. Does that make sense? His history becomes our history. He died, he rose again, and he is at the right hand of the Father. That's his history. The gospel is the story of what happened to the Son of God. But then the gospel is what happened to you because of what happened to the Son of God. He died, he was buried, he rose, he ascended. What happened to you? You died, you were buried, you rose again, and you ascended, and that's the way it is. You see, the woman, as I said, was not merely trying to locate the coin, She was only satisfied to restore the coin to where it was supposed to be in the first place. It wasn't, I found my coin, let's put it on a shelf somewhere and hope I don't lose it again. It was, I found my coin, it goes back into the necklace, back onto my head where it belongs. And Jesus comes to restore us to what was intended from the very beginning of the beginning. 
And he does. He does. And he doesn't do it by giving it to us. He becomes it himself. He joins you. He's your health. He is our broken pipes. That's what it is. You say, well, all that happened 2,000 years ago. Sort of. Um, it was a cosmic happening. I don't think it takes too much imagination when God becomes flesh. And when God takes on Satan and sin, um, that's hardly a local event in the local newspaper. Um, that covers all time and space. But the Holy Spirit, so the Father sends Jesus because he wants you so much. But also the Father sends the Holy Spirit because it's not over yet. It's not over. Because our translation, and when will they ever learn the meaning of a word? I read it. I read it just as it is, even though it tastes like sand in my mouth. Uh, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. No, I've told you before, that is a, a wretched, it's a disgusting, it is a foul translation of a beautiful word. I, I, don't, I don't know how it happened, but back when the church was as rotten and corrupt as it could be, they, they took the meaning of the word and replaced it with this word, repentance. And repentance in plain English means do your penance over and over and over again and try and please God. The word there in the Greek is metanoia, which means the blaze of light in which you see all things clearly. It's a radical change of mind, almost to say an exchange of mind, where you exchange your mind for the mind of Christ. Jesus said, oh, there's joy in heaven when the lights turn on and I see it clearly. Christ is my finder. He is the one who brings me back to where I belong. And the Holy Spirit is involved in that because the Holy Trinity never works in bits and pieces. You meet Jesus, you meet the Spirit and the Father. You meet the Father, you meet Jesus and the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the one that opens your eyes. You see, everything I have said this morning is in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, in fact, it's interesting because Paul just spills it out. There's no punctuation. I pity his secretary who's trying to write it all down. He just spills it out. And then he takes a breath in verse 17. He said, and I'm praying for you. What are you praying, Paul? that the eyes of your understanding will be opened so that you might see, you might know the hope to which you have been called. That's what I've been talking about. And that you, in, in knowing that you might know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead so that you would experience this is not something to talk about. It's not something you do an exam over. and It's not something you get called a doctor of theology about. This happens to you. The Holy Spirit. It's almost like a remembrance. There's no more time. What was is and what is is everything that was and everything that shall be. Is now. Yes. 
the Holy Spirit makes that real. He says, um, the, the Spirit opened the eyes. And in opening your eyes, you might see. And in seeing, you'll see darkness. That's the first thing. It's an amazing thing. <coughs> Without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't even know you're in the dark. Holy Spirit opens your eyes. You're, it's dark. I don't belong here. And then he shows you light. That's where I belong. So it says, he'll open your eyes so that, so that you might turn from the darkness and go to light. Of course you will. You see it now. You turn from Satan. You turn to God. Of course you do. You see the truth. And you see how daft and stupid sin is. I, I, I turn. It says, so that you might receive the undoing of all the shackles of your sin. And that you might receive the inheritance to which you were called. The coins back in your head. You know, back there. It's all as it should be. So, I just, uh, yeah, where is it? But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, the coins in the dirt. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by sheer gift, you have been saved. He raised us up with Christ and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. It's by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Ha ha. And that faith, not of yourself. It was the gift of God. Because faith is not something I have like a hundred dollar bill in my billfold that I now pull out and pay for something God has done. So if you've got enough faith, you can have it. No, that's paganism. The Bible says faith is a gift of God. How so? Because faith, biblically speaking, is a response. You get that? Faith is a response. Faith is like your eyes. You see and what you see, you respond to. Yeah. And that's why we don't talk about faith very much any more than I talk about my eyes. Right. I never think about my eyes. Unless something's wrong with them. But you don't take your eye and pull it out to look at it. Do I have enough sight? You know? <laughs> Do I have enough faith? No, don't be, no, you don't talk. It, it, because faith is a response to something the Holy Spirit has shown you. Yes. It, it's, it's a revelation, a metanoia, and you see. And when I see, well, faith is, it's a gift of God. It comes yes. with the seeing. Mm-hmm. I respond to it. So it's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, you trying to believe so that no one may boast. You're his workmanship. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, not by them, 
Because you see, this doesn't end. The terminus isn't, you'll go to heaven when you die. This says you'll bring heaven to earth because you're alive. There's a different kind of message. You don't go to the people around you and say, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? You go and say, the life that is filled with joy and peace, the love of God is here in this place now. Let's see what he's going to do. So you see, when, when you believe, and I know what you mean, now I'm not haggling about terms, I'll, I'll see you in Christ any way I can get. So yeah, let, let's suppose that you walked forward somewhere and you say, I received Christ. Now I could argue about that because if you followed me in the last hour, you know that he created you, he fills every cell of your body. You know, people say, I received Jesus, and I respond, he said, jolly good job, he received you first. Um, you know, it, it, we got it backwards. But I won't, no, I won't, I mean that. I, I know what you meant. You had an experience, now let me interpret your experience, you had an experience where your eyes were opened to see the greatness of Jesus. So really, when you believe nothing, um, what can I say, nothing new happened, you you woke up to something that's been there since before the creation of the world. Do you understand at least what I'm saying? I don't say you can agree with it, but you know what I'm saying? That um, it's, it's as if I, I wake up and I'm on the dance floor and there's a dance going on all around me and I just woke up. And the Holy Spirit reaches and says, come on, this dance is for you. And here we go. It's, the dance has been going on since before time. The Holy Trinity circle of love. And we, we, we join in. We join into something that's had our name on it since forever. And um, had my name on it in the incarnation. Had my name on it in the death, resurrection of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes searching for you and brings us into the dance. Yes. And that's the way it is. Yes. Yes. Amen. Come on, amen. Yes. Father, thank you. Just thank you. Thank you. What else is there to say? Thank you. And open our eyes. Make us delirious with rejoicing yes. at the hope of our calling. Lord Jesus Christ, amen. amen.